So tonight I would like to speak about the third noble truth. And um, in my uh, weekly group in San Francisco, we've been kind of reviewing the fundamental teachings of the Buddha. And so we've been talking about the four truths. And so I'll just mention, um, for those of you who might not be familiar, the Four Noble Truths are really at the heart of the Buddha's teaching and his awakening. There's a story in the suttas where he says, um, he picks up a handful of leaves and he says to the bhikkhus, the practitioners, he said, he says, is this handful of leaves uh, greater or less than the leaves on all the trees uh, in the forest? And so the bhikkhus are, you know, they're pretty bright and they get it. They say, well, it's less. You know, there's many more leaves on the uh, trees in the forest and there's only a few in your hand. And he says, just so, he said, so what I discovered, what I realized, what I saw on the night of my awakening was as great as the leaves on the trees in the forest. But what I teach is like the leaves in my hand. Why is that? Because this is what is useful. This is what is helpful. This is what leads to freedom in the holy life. And then he goes on to describe the Four Noble Truths. And simply put, put the Four Truths are that there, there is suffering, there is an origin to suffering, there is freedom or cessation of suffering, and there is a path that leads to that freedom, to that cessation. Now, one other thing before I go into the third truth a little more is often the, uh, people hear the four truths um, kind of from a Western perspective. So they hear them as laws, or they hear them as prayers, or they hear them um, not exactly in the way they're offered, which is a kind of um, interactive schema to understand suffering and freedom from suffering. They're not, it's not a passive realization that the Buddha posited. So that the four truths each have three parts. Each truth has three parts. There's the recognition of the truth, then there's what's called the encouragement, how to practice with the truth. And then there's the realization of the truth. So it's really an interactive um, schema that we work with. And so I'd like to begin the talking about the third truth, freedom from suffering, cessation of suffering with this poem by Ryokan. He says, without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough for this bent old body. Alone, I hike with the deer. Cheerfully, I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fills my heart. 
It's a beautiful poem describing the third noble truth. Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. It's helpful to know that the second noble truth, that there is an origin to suffering, the origin that's pointed to by the Buddha and in the teachings is desire, uh, craving, clinging, attachment to our wanting and attachment to our what we don't want. Attachment meaning pushing away what we don't want. And so Ryokan, he, he sums it up here. Without desire, everything is sufficient. Have you ever seen that in your own experience, in your own life? Well, you want this or you want that, and then for whatever reason, you're not going to get it, and you let go of the wanting. And then you realize, oh, you're fine without it. You're absolutely fine. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit in paradoxes at times. And one of the paradoxes is when we talk about, you know, freedom means uh, without desire, it doesn't mean without desire, OK? Let's, let's get that straight, OK? It means we're not attached to our desire. Desires come and go, but we're not bound by them. We're not at the mercy of our desire. We're not imprisoned by our desires. So that one of the most um, famous Zen texts, which is the Shinshin Ming, it's uh, verses from the faith mind, or or the mind or heart of absolute trust. It begins this way. It says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences, no desires. But that doesn't mean you don't have any preferences. It means you're not attached to them. You're not bound by them. You see them for what they are. Oh, I like this. I don't like that. But you see that your freedom is not dependent on them. You see that who and what you are, in essence, doesn't matter about the wanting and not wanting. So let's look at this tonight. Let's examine this. Let's explore it. And I'll speak from a few different perspectives. I'll use a few people that I was researching and then give some commentary on their thoughts. And so the, the Buddha put it this way. He said, this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, the complete cessation, giving up, abandoning, release, and detachment from craving. Very clear, yes? Let go. Or maybe even more wisely said, don't hold on begin to come into harmony with the way things are. So the third noble truth, letting go of craving and realizing freedom, realizing the freedom, the joy, the happiness that's available to us. Thich Nhat Hanh, when I was reading 
his thoughts about this. He, he talked about this schema. Remember, there's three parts to this truth. The first part is the recognition of the possibility of the absence of suffering and the presence of peace. That's how he puts it. The recognition of the possibility of the absence of suffering and the presence of peace. And I would, I would play with that a little. I would say it's a recognition of the possibility of the absence of suffering and the presence of peace or freedom or joy or love or simplicity or openness or what arises when there's no grasping, when there's no holding, when there's no I have to have or I can't have this experience. What's actually there? And it comes in a variety of forms. Um, one of the Tibetan teachers I, I've sat with, he talks about the ornamentation of emptiness. And so it could be peace, but it could be freedom, or it could be joy, or it could be bliss, or it could be just open, or it could be simple, or it could be calm. And you've all had these experiences and so part of this first piece in studying and working with the, uh, the third noble truth is recognizing that you have had these experiences and recognizing them when they're here. And actually, a little bit more, people seem to be more studied at recognizing when they're suffering than recognizing when they're not suffering. Have you noticed that? Everybody gets, oh, when we're suffering, it really catches our attention. It's very compelling, physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, societal suffering. You know, whatever form of distress or disease, we really notice that. But often we don't notice when it's absent. And then everything's okay, so what's the big deal, right? The Buddha is saying, pay attention here. Don't let, don't not pay attention. Actually, this is really a good place to pay attention. It may be more subtle. It may be more ineffable. It may be more simple. But pay attention when you're not suffering. And those moments actually happen all the time. Mostly we notice them at when a big suffering ceases. Right? There's some big heartache or big worry or big distress, and then you find your wallet. You know, it's been lost for a while, right? <laughs> and you find your wallet, and then you f you're happy. <laughs> but we don't pay attention to that sense of, oh, this is freedom from suffering. At that moment, there's no suffering. Or you realize, even without your wallet, even better, you're okay. You'll survive. It's not a big deal, really. You make a couple phone calls. Hope somebody hasn't run up a bill on you, you know? Thich Nhat Hanh goes, to, goes on to say, he says, if you can't recognize it now, at least remembering the possibility that, that non-suffering is possible, that well-being is possible. Another way um, I've seen him talk about it uh, in other places is um, he talks about what it's like not to have a toothache at this moment. Anybody not have a toothache right now? Okay. Isn't that great? 
I, I, I never really got this until I broke my knee last year. And now I really know the joy of having an unbroken knee. And I hope all your knees are well tonight. And that you can enjoy that. Because it's, Thich Nhat Hanh, when he, when he talks about it this way, he's pointing at something. He's pointing at that this life is very precious. And when we're here, when we're awake to it, we realize that just to move our hands and to see and to hear and to speak, this is quite <coughs> something. It's quite amazing. One of uh, Suzuki Roshi used to say to his students, just to be alive is enough. How's that for just a complete Dharma teaching? Just to be alive is enough. I didn't understand that for a while, actually for a long time. I liked it, but I didn't understand it. But I get it now. Just to be alive, when we really see what's here, that, that's all. Just to be alive is enough. To recognize this possibility for freedom. The second aspect or turning of the Third Noble Truth, the encouragement. The encouragement is actually to discover peace, to discover freedom, to discover cessation from suffering, to look deeply, look closely, what is present when suffering is absent. Thich Han puts it this way. He says, if you want to garden, you have to bend down and touch the soil. Try this for a second. Visualize a garden, beautiful garden, like your dream garden. Could be an English garden or an Asian garden or, or just a backyard garden. Maybe you have uh, oh, all this nice organic vegetables and lettuce and tomatoes and summer squash and you know maybe there's some fruit trees in your garden there's some nice plums and apricots apricots kind of bursting off the tree you know so you can almost just looking at them you can almost taste the juiciness of it isn't that nice that's a fun thing to do sometimes it's not actually having a garden, though, right? Okay? To have a garden, you have to do a little more than just think about it. It's not an idea. And the same is true for realizing the Buddha's teachings. They're fun to think about. And, and actually, it's very helpful to think about. It's not a bad thing. It's an important part of practice. You know, when the Dalai Lama was here and speaking to us, he said, he was talking about studying. He said, read, think, read, think, read, think. You know, really think about it. But practice also so that our thinking can be um, a contemplative thinking based on direct experience, direct knowledge, direct knowing, direct awakening. And so to practice the Four Noble Truths, Thich Nhat Hanh says, you have to touch deeply the things that bring you peace and joy. Now, if I would have been doing the, the whole series, we would have also said, to understand the Four Noble Truths and freedom, 
we have to touch suffering deeply also. They're not separate in that way. Hmm. I want to add this in. This is about touching suffering and ultimately about touching joy deeply. And so this whole teaching of the Four Noble Truths is really a study in suffering and release and letting go of the origins of suffering. But sometimes people are aversive then to suffering or to what they think is attachment. And I've seen that not be so helpful at times. It's almost like there'll be a, a mental idea of what attachment is and so people will kind of be, oh, I shouldn't be too happy because I'll get attached. Or I shouldn't be too involved, I'll get attached. And I say, go ahead, get attached. See, see directly what attachment is and what it isn't. And so this is from a tantric teacher. I really like this. She's talking to a student of hers who said he had trouble letting go. And she said, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go. But how do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness, in full awareness, with a totally open heart? The first thing is having the experience of touch, of profound contact with things, with the universe, without mental commotion. Everything begins here, touching the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, that can bring upon, upon mental turmoil. Many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold. The heart is never opened. They enter into a sterile void and remain imprisoned. When you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. And I'll say more about that natural process of letting go a little later. So to touch deeply both our suffering and our joy. And really, they're, they're connected. Um, some quote by Rilke that the measure of our joy is the, or the measure of our sadness is, is the depth of our joy. They're, they're totally connected. That if we live in a narrow band in terms of how we relate to our sorrow, our grief, our fear, our anger, we'll live in a narrow band in terms of how we relate to the sense of happiness, joy, love, compassion, ecstasy. And we want to open fully to what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and sorrow of this amazing human life. And so, it's helpful at times, and we encourage you at times, it doesn't always have to be this way, to go on intensive retreat. Because it's a place where you will deeply touch the 10,000 joys and sorrows. And people invariably even on a short retreat, two, three, four days, begin to have an experience that they know directly, oh, this is peace, or this is freedom, or this is happiness. Happiness not based on conditions, not based on getting what we want or we don't want, 
but the happiness that's really our nature, that's beyond our preferences, beyond our desires. And, you know, even one experience of that can change a whole life, especially when you recognize it. You see, oh, this is what I've been... It's like coming home. This is what I've been looking for. And then one's whole life turns and begins to re revolve around that understanding. Really beautiful. Beautiful to be in the position and the role of being able to see that over and over again, people. And it can happen in your, in any, at any time when we really see clearly and deeply the truth of suffering and the origin of suffering, and then the freedom, the realization of cessation. Then Thich Nhat Hanh goes on to describe the third aspect of this noble truth of cessation, which is called the realization. So there's the recognition, there's the encouragement to really practice, to really look. And then there's the realization, and as he puts it, the realization that suffering and happiness are not two. The realization that suffering and happiness are not two. They're not separate. And this is a beautiful paradox. And it's a paradox that's not necessarily resolved in our thinking mind, in our discursive mind. It's really the paradox that's resolved in our heart, in learning how to be with experience and see its nature and see the freedom there in seeing the nature of all things. So even in this sitting that we sat for 40 or so minutes, what happened? Thoughts, feelings, uh, desires, aversions. If we can begin to sit with this experience, which is what the training in mindfulness is, we begin to see the nature of things. Where is all, where are all those thoughts and feelings and sounds and wantings and not wantings and preferences? They're all gone. You've got new ones coming right now. Right here, reaction to the talk, liking, not liking, hurry up, slow down, I wish it was hotter, I wish it was cooler. But when we're mindful, when we sit, when we look, we see, oh, this is just appearing and disappearing over and over again. This is the nature of things as they are. This is our nature. We're appearing for a while and soon we'll disappear, soon enough. And then we discover that there's a knowing that things arise and they're known and we don't have to hold on to them. We don't have to reject what's difficult. We don't have to deny our suffering and we don't have to identify with it either. That it's all happening on its own. And so it's very important to to practice, to sit, and to sit with our experience and not reject it. Dharma practice is based on a tremendous acceptance, a tremendous openness and kindness of heart. A poem about kindness. I was hoping I could fit it in here somewhere. 
I can't remember her name, the poet, Naomi. She's a Palestinian-American woman. Nye. Pardon? Nye. Nye, yes. Naomi, middle name Shabazz, maybe? Nye. She says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and saved carefully, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever before you learn the tender gravity of kindness. You must travel where the Indian in the white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes any sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Beautiful poem, kindness. So woven into our practice, so important. This balancing of wisdom and compassion of clear seeing and a tremendous open-heartedness so that we're not judging our desires, our wanting, our preferences. That's not the teaching of the Buddha. Recognition, clear seeing, kindness. And so we don't reject experience. Stephen Batchelor puts it this way in talking about the third noble truth. He says, letting go of a craving is not rejecting it, but allowing it to be itself, a contingent state of mind that once arisen will pass away. Instead of forcibly freeing ourselves from it, notice how its very nature is to free itself. So again, as the tantric teacher said, as we pay attention, we see as we hold things, actually we learn, as we see clearly, that we can't hold on to anything. That that's just the way things are. And so then we can relax. We don't have to hold on things because it's impossible. I mean, you can try if you want. I mean, you know, it's good to experiment. See, what can you actually hold on to? And it's stunning at times. I still, I sometimes feel, I say this, and I also, I still feel how it's amazing. Just reflect on this for a moment. Your whole life is gone. You just, just let that settle a little. Your whole life is gone, except for this moment. I mean, it's just a stunning truth. 
you know, we think about it so much and we, it's so important and we have so many strong feelings and reactions and ideas. It's hard to realize it's actually just gone. My, my daughter left this year for college and it was just stunning. 18 years, you know, it's gone, it's gone. And she's very clear about that. <laughs> she's very clear. She's gone. She's like, I'll call you, Dad. Send me some money. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's beautiful. But it was like, you know, at the, when those moments happen, when we see it so clearly, it's very helpful, very helpful to see it clearly. And so we don't have to reject our experience. We don't have to deny it. We don't have to be afraid of it because its nature is just to come and go like those 18 years or how many years you've had. Remember all the things you thought you couldn't experience or were too much. They may be very difficult, very hard. I don't want to disrespect that at all. But our life is our practice. And our life, the phenomena, the experiences, the moments of life teach us about the way things are. And really about the way we are, because we're no different from it. We're not really a separate thing. We're simply arising and passing like everything else. And so learning to allow this, allow life to come and go, this is the art of practice. Learning to find that place of peace, freedom, joy, openness, even with our sorrows, even with the difficulty, even with suffering. And so we learn to not identify with experience. Stephen Batchelor goes on, he says it this way, he says, by identifying with a craving, I want this, I want that, you tighten the clutch and intensify its resistance. You solidify it in some way, he's saying. Instead of being a state of mind that you have, it becomes a compulsion that has you. Everybody know that? He says, by identifying with the craving, I want this, I want that, you tighten the clutch. You concretize it in a certain way. So instead of being a state of mind that you have, you know, I'm angry, or I'm desirous, or I'm whatever, lusting, whatever it is, it becomes a compulsion that has you. And that's a lot our experience, that we feel the sense of we don't experience freedom. And so we want to be very respectful, kind to that, not to judge that, but to see, oh, this is suffering. Now we're seeing suffering. And of course, that's the first recognition of the first noble truth, to recognize suffering. That when we're caught in that way, we're suffering. And then to bring mindfulness, to bring your presence, to bring, to see that this is being known, that there's this awareness that knows this state of mind or heart or being. And so we kind of disidentify now here the paradox around disidentification is the more we disidentify, the more we can identify, the more fully we can actually feel things. We can actually allow 
the deepest pain, the deepest sorrow, the deepest joy, the greatest happiness, because we see it for what it is. It's just a passing show. And it's amazing. It's just amazing. Empty phenomena rolling on, one of my teachers said. <laughs> empty phenomena. And that's not a bad thing. People have so many bad connotations about emptiness. This is emptiness, okay? Here we are. This is the fullness of emptiness, or the fecundity of emptiness. Everything is here. And so this disidentification, this not grasping, is really, is really just being. And remember, we're human beings, not human doings. So we get to let go of having to do anything. We can just be. And then our nature reveals itself. The openness, the kindness, the care, the freedom. And so Bachelor, Stephen Batchelor goes on very poetically, I, I think. He says, by letting go of craving, it will finally cease on its own. This cessation allows us to realize, if only momentarily, the freedom, the openness, the ease of the central path, the middle way. He continues, he says, this sudden gap in the rush of self-centered compulsion and fear allows us to see with unambiguous immediacy and clarity the transient, unreliable, and contingent nature of reality. Should I say that again? Okay, okay. So by letting go of craving, in other words, by not doing anything, just seeing, not holding on to it, but I think a better way to say it even, it will finally cease. This cessation allows us to realize, if only for a moment, the freedom, openness, and ease of the central path. It's his way of talking about the middle way, the Buddha's teachings. We realize freedom at that moment. This sudden gap in the rush of self-centered compulsion and fear. You know how you're, you ever go around and you feel like you're in a bee's nest of yourself? You know, it's just like whirling Eugene, you know, thinking this and then you can barely see the trees or the cars or anything amazing we drive on freeways. Um, you know, when that, when there's a gap in that, and you can really feel it as a gap at times, it's like, whoa, it's just open. Then it allows us to see with unambiguous immediacy because this is really indescribable, but it's really a moment of non-fear, non-greed, non-aversion. And then what's here? And, and, it, and there's no separation from what's here. Unambiguous immediacy that we see with this immediacy and clarity the transient, unreliable, and contingent nature of reality. And so he's describing here what's called in the Theravada teachings the three characteristics of reality. Transient meaning impermanent, unreliable meaning dukkha, suffering, if we attempt to grasp it. And contingent nature is really another way to talk about selflessness. That reality is just 
conditions that generate more conditions. Conditions coming out of conditions, which is what we are. And so we begin to see, we begin to know di directly the freedom of being. Sometimes people experience it in nature, in a moment when that whole self-centered uh, compulsion drops. And we're just there for a moment. And life is amazing and beautiful. Or just simple. can be very simple also. Bhikkhu Suchito, Suchito, who's a wonderful teacher in England, friend of mine, he says, what is involved in realizing the Third Noble Truth is a lightening of the heart, not an intensification of one's self-preoccupation, opinions, and convoluted reasoning to justify objectionable conduct. <laughs> you know, you know how you're trying to explain yourself and this and this? And you just let it go. <laughs> what a relief. Now, I just want to say one thing, a little caveat. One of the phrases I like about Buddha's practice is to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to um, forget the self, meaning let go of the self. But sometimes we actually become a little more preoccupied at first, because we really want to see, well, who what is this? And that's, a, that's not the kind of preoccupation we're talking about. We're talking about that lost kind of whirlwind of bee's nest of Eugene or whoever you are. And so Suchito continues, he says, when suffering fades out, when desire is relinquished, what is left? What is present? There's cessation. There's a rest from desire. Desire is not our fundamental nature. It's not fundamentally who we are. Yet we have to train the mind to attend to the peaceful spaces, however momentarily they may be experienced. To experience this even briefly, to get a real taste, gives one the confidence that there is now no suffering. So it's really that seeing clearly and recognizing the truth of non-suffering. I had a friend, a guy, a very kind of streetwise guy from Baltimore, whose nickname was The Fluke. And The Fluke, uh, he knew I was into meditation. And he came, he said, oh, what's this meditation stuff? And what's it about? And I said, oh, go do a day long. And you check it out, see what you think. And he did a day long, he liked it. He said, okay, I'm going to do three days. He did three days, and then he did ten days. He came back from the ten day. He said, man, I couldn't believe it. I saw the moment unfold. <laughs> and, you know, he was gone. And then, then he went and did three months, and he did another three months. He's done about five three-month retreats since then, the fluke. <laughs> and uh, beautiful guy. It helps to practice in order to recognize freedom, and to recognize it in the sense of unambiguous immediacy, because that is indescribable. 
And it can happen. It doesn't have to be a big thing. I mean, just the breath. When you're actually with the breath or a step in walking meditation and there is nothing else. Beautiful. So Stephen Batchelor continues. He says, and he's, he really uses a kind of uh, existential poetics to describe the truth. He says, in the cessation of craving, we touch that dimension of experience that is timeless. The playful, unimpeded contingency of things emerging from conditions only to become conditions for something else. This is a great flow or unfoldment of reality. He he says it like this, he says, this is emptiness, not a cosmic vacuum, but the unborn, undying, infinitely creative dimension of life. It is known as the womb of awakening. Beautiful phrase, the womb of awakening. It is the clearing in the still center of becoming, the tract on which the centered person moves, and it whispers, realize me. Should I say that one again? Okay. In the cessation of craving, we touch that dimension of experience that is timeless. I need to see, I need to check the time here. So we're talking about the timeless. You know, there's relative reality and absolute reality. They're both important. We touch that dimension of experience which is timeless, the playful, unimpeded contingency of things emerging from conditions only to become conditions for something else. This is emptiness, not a cosmic vacuum, but the unborn, undying, infinitely creative dimension of life. And it's not a dimension like, oh, we have it. We are we are it. It's what we arise out of. We are an expression of that infinitely creative dimension of life, this human life. It is known as the womb of awakening. It is the clearing in the still center of becoming, the tract on which the centered person moves, and it whispers, realize me. You know, when we touch this freedom, this openness, often one of the ways you can recognize it is there's often a spontaneous gratitude. Just we're grateful. Sometimes we might not even know why we're grateful, but we know gratitude. One of my teachers once said, when you're feeling grateful, you're in touch with reality. When you're feeling grateful, you're in touch with reality. This is a poem from Anna Swir that describes it and shows you how a little bit that, you know, desire is not actually a huge obstacle in this sense, but you'll hear the poem. Great humility fills me. Great purity fills me. I made love with my dear as if I made love dying, as if I made love 
praying. Tears pour over my arms and his arms. I don't know whether this is joy or grief. I don't understand what I feel. I'm crying, I'm crying. It's humility, as if I were already dead. Gratitude, I thank you, my fate. I am unworthy. How beautiful my life. Mm. So a moment of freedom in meditation, at the beach, at work, with your family, making love. <coughs> Even in the middle, it can be in the middle of very difficult experiences at times. I'm thinking about uh, um, sometimes in the middle of an uh, argument with my wife and just getting very present, very aware, and just see the space in which that's all happening. And then it's, and I can still argue pretty good from that place. <laughs> but I'm not so attached to the outcome. And I can actually enjoy this, these conditions that will be, then become the conditions for whatever else. And so we learn slowly, kindly, patiently to let go. You know, it's not necessarily the training we got for the first how many ever years, right? So it's very helpful, this, the kindness and the patience. And letting go over and over again to realize not as an idea, but directly the mysterious and the magical and the simple reality of what Stephen Batchelor called the creative, infinitely creative dimension of life. And you'll hear it talked about in Zen teachings, sometimes very succinctly. They'll say something like, knowledge is learning something new every day, and wisdom is letting go of something every day. Or gaining is inferior, and abandoning is superior. Or this haiku that goes, burns burnt down, now I can see the moon. Mm. I think that's a good place to end. Mm -hmm. Barns burnt down. Now I can see the moon. What's the first word? Barn. It's when people had barns. A barn. <laughs> barn. But I think, I think the barn may be a metaphor for our attachment to our sense of self. Barns burnt down, because the moon is often a metaphor for enlightenment in Zen practice. So let's sit for a minute. with a poem by Mary Oliver. She says, to live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, let it go.
May our practice here this evening be for our benefit and be for the benefit of all beings in all directions, in all worlds. May all beings realize the third noble truth, freedom from suffering. May all beings realize their Buddha nature. May all beings realize wisdom and compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.